Well, we are continuing our look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just a reminder, as we've mentioned before, those books are two separate books in our English Bibles, but were at first, when the Hebrew Bible was put together, they were one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's really one account of post-exilic Jewish history. And as you know, uh, it has been a trial. It's been a trial for Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as we uh, really were introduced to him, as his life as we know it began with, with trial in this, in this record, in this book. His life in this journey that he's on is, began with a report that Jerusalem had been attacked that the walls had been broken down, that the gates had been burned, and as we saw, it sent Nehemiah into months long of weeping and prayer because he knew what he had to do. He knew that God was calling him to head down there, to leave his really esteemed position, his cushy life in Susa, in the Persian capital, to leave his cushy job as, as cupbearer to the king and to head down to Jerusalem to help lead that effort to rebuild the walls, to protect the city against invasion. And as we've seen so far, it's really been a book full of trials, full of trials that have pushed Nehemiah into prayer, into times of supplication, into seeking God's face for protection. Our text today is Nehemiah chapter 6 as we (coughs) continue this look. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up as I read and then even afterward as we go through the passage. Follow along. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Senballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Senballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come. Let us meet together at Hakafurim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, 
And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoahanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Well, as I mentioned, when we looked at chapter 4, which was all about the external opposition that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem faced, Judah, at this time, is literally surrounded by enemies. When you look at the geography of, of where these enemies come from, you see that they have this man Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria. Samaria lay to the north of Judah. You have this man named Tobiah, who scholars think was the governor of Ammon, which laid to the east of Judah. Then you have this man Geshem, who was an Arab ruler. The Arabs were to the south. And then you don't have a leader there, but you have these Ashdodites, and they were to the west of Judah. So Judah, geographically, is surrounded by these enemies. And you can see here in this text that these enemies are now beginning to become desperate. They're beginning to become desperate. We saw in chapter 4 that they tried their hand at all kinds of intimidation tactics and trying to oppose this building of the wall. At the beginning, they tried jeering and taunting. They tried despising the people and, and really trying to get the people who were working on the wall to stop. They tried plotting. They thought of fighting them and bringing confusion. They even went so far as to plot killing the people. And what we saw is that really all of these workers who were not professionals, it wasn't as though Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah down there with an army to protect them. He didn't send Nehemiah down there with a whole band of architects and masons to help build this work. He sent Nehemiah by himself. And Nehemiah came and and all he could do was rally the people none of whom were professional wall builders, to gather together, some even daughters of of rulers, and they did what they could to rebuild this burnt down and broken down wall. And as we saw, the the enemies saw this going on, and they were even taunting them, saying, "If if a fox were to jump on that wall, it would crumble, it's so bad. After a while, when they were plotting to come in and attack them, you saw Nehemiah organize everybody and have them hold swords in one hand and literally try to work with 
almost like one hand tied behind their back, putting stones up while holding swords, and he organized shifts, and even he and his men uh, went without any rest just to try to defend what was going on. Despite all of that, what we see here in chapter 6 is that the wall is just about finished. What Nehemiah says is there is no breach left in the wall. And what does that mean? That means that Judah's enemies are running out of time. Once the doors are hung on the gates, which hasn't quite yet happened, there will be no other option for stopping the building of this wall, for destroying Jerusalem, than to lay siege to the city, which is something that these enemies would never do. And that's because they too lived under the reign of King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes did not want that kind of warring going on in his land. If there was one king that was going to lay siege to a city, it would be him. And he was not going to authorize these men on their own to go lay siege and, and have a, a battle against Jerusalem just because they didn't like them. And so they knew that time was running out. And so they decide, rather than continuing to attack the people in general, to go after the head of the whole project itself, Nehemiah. Notice in verses 1 to 4 that they make these sort of first attempts to stop Nehemiah. They ask to meet him at this place that, unless you're Jewish, is really hard to pronounce. This is a transliteration of, of the city, but it's something like Hakfirim in the plain of Ono. Now, according to archaeologists, this place, this plain of Ono, this place that they wanted to meet him, it was over a day's journey for Nehemiah to reach. So they're, they're asking him to journey far outside of the walls of Jerusalem. It was supposedly neutral territory. It was still in the land of Judah, but it was in the far upper northwest corner of Judah. And it not only was it there, but it, it lay kind of right in between the area of Ashdod and the area of Samaria. And look at their language here. They say to Nehemiah, come, let us meet together. The way they approach him is, is very diplomatic. Sounds kind. It's, it's almost as if they're telling Nehemiah, hey, let's, let's meet together. Let's hash this out. Let's, let's bury the hatchet. They don't need all this fighting. Come and, and meet us in this neutral territory. It's still in Judah. And, uh, and we'll hash this out together and and all of the attacks can stop. Let's meet. It's a very different tone here than the previous mockery and attack from early on. Obviously, they've learned their lesson, so they're trying a different tactic. But it seems, although it could just be Nehemiah, you know, being wise, perhaps Nehemiah has inside information. He says that he knows that they're up to no good, that that they really aren't trying to work anything out, that, that really this is a plot designed to trap and, I think, destroy Nehemiah. Nehemiah, remember, was initially sent down there with a guard, a Persian guard. And Nehemiah was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. He was sent down there with 
official letters from Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes knows he's down there. Uh, they really, I think, would have a hard time attacking Nehemiah directly. But if they can lure him away from the city and get him a days away from Jerusalem and then somehow kidnap him on the way and kill him on the way, then the report can be sent to Artaxerxes, look, we don't really know what happened to the man. He was meeting us for a meeting and I guess he was killed by bandits, we're not sure. Nehemiah sees through what they're saying. Notice here the way that he answers them in verse 3. I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Notice how diplomatic Nehemiah's answer is. If, if, if their approach to him is rather diplomatic, come, let's just hash this out, his answer to them is kind of along the same lines. And the more I read that and thought about it, it actually made me laugh. I think this is one of those kind of hidden lines of humor in Scripture. Because think about what Nehemiah is doing here. I think he's, he's really feigning innocence. He's feigning ignorance to what they're trying to do. He's answering them according to how they addressed him, and he's answering them kind of governor to governor. These guys are governors, and so he's just replying to them. You know what, guys? Look, geez, I'd love to meet with you. I really would. But, you know, I've got this great building project going on. You've probably seen it. I'm trying to build this wall. And you guys know, you're governors too. You wouldn't leave a building project like this for a meeting. Otherwise, it would stop. So, I'm sorry, I, I can't come and meet you. You can almost see these guys seething with anger. <laughs> because the whole reason they want Nehemiah away is so the wall can be stopped. And he's pointed to them saying, if I leave we won't be able to finish the wall. You understand, don't you? He doesn't bring up at all what they're trying to do. I think it's interesting that Nehemiah here, it really reminds me uh, of, of being sort of wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And he's kind of doing what Jesus would do. Sometimes Jesus would reply with a strong reply uh, after someone had attacked him. And sometimes he would reply with something that would just subtly trap his opponents, so they had nowhere else to go. You remember when in Matthew 21, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you these, this authority? Jesus answered them, I'll ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe in him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> I just love, love that answer. And Nehemiah essentially, I think, does the same thing. <laughs> he just frustrates their attempt but notice they repeat this four times. Four times they, they come back at him with the same kind of language, the same kind of approach. Nehemiah, come talk to us. No, I'm sorry, I have this building project. Nehemiah, come on, come and talk. I'm sorry, I can't leave the building. Four times. Now this text, I think, 
might be a bit of an understatement. Sometimes Scripture does that. I don't know that it is. The text might lend us to believe that, that this wasn't difficult for Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was cool as a cucumber as he sent these replies that, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. And maybe he was. I don't want to go too far in saying something that the text doesn't say, but I suspect just as a human being and, and as someone who's in leadership myself, that that's not really true. I suspect that that scripture isn't giving us all the insight into what was going on in Nehemiah's mind and heart. Because think about it. Basically, these guys are promising Nehemiah, I think, to engage in these diplomatic discussions, I think, so that they can find common ground, so that they can bury the hatchet, so that there'll be no more attacks. Now, think about what Nehemiah has been going through. Basically, unrelentingly, since he's gotten down here, he has been facing attack after attack after attack. He has been seeing the hardship that his people are going through. He's been seeing how they've had to defend themselves. He has dealt with sleepless nights as he's had to have a trumpeter next to him and guarding and looking out at where the attacks would come from. This whole time, they've been trying to build a wall, and he's seen the kind of, of ridicule and slander and mockery that the people that he loves have been put through by these people. What kind of pressure then was put on Nehemiah to just go and talk to these men? I mean, after all, Nehemiah is making an assumption here, perhaps, or listening to intel that these men really wish him to do him harm. But after four times, I can, I can almost imagine his closest advisors saying, look, Nehemiah, why don't you just do it? Just go and, and meet with these guys. And so I don't know how easy this was, how, how much internal questioning he wrestled with, how much time he spent grieving over all of the attacks and hardship that continued while he didn't meet with them. Nevertheless, he did not meet with them. He turned them down, and, and after trying four times, notice in verses 5 to 7 that the tactics change. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Now I think this tactic is a lot riskier for Sanballat. Because prior to this, he's really just been trying to attack Nehemiah or trick Nehemiah and get him now He's sending this open letter that is openly accusing the king's cupbearer of doing something really bad. And it's also involving now King Artaxerxes in this open letter. I, I think he's now risking life and limb, really, to, to send out this open letter. But you can see just how desperate he is. He'll try anything. Now, usually, when officials would send each other letters, they sent sealed letters. When one governor would send to another governor, one king to another king, he would send a sealed letter with his seal on it. So therefore, the only person who could read 
the contents would be the king or the governor that received it. But notice here, this is specifically said an open letter, which means that anyone can read this. That as this message is being passed along, anyone who finds this and reads it will see what's going on here, what at least is being uh, submitted as evidence. Why would they send an open letter? Well, they're sending an open letter not to squash rumors, not to warn Nehemiah of what's being said so that he can somehow stop these rumors, but to spread rumors. They are hoping that this message that Nehemiah is trying to set himself up as king in Judah, that he, he's not doing what he told Artaxerxes. Remember, he told Artaxerxes, look, please let me go down there. I'll go down just temporarily. I'll set up temporary housing. I'll become the governor down there. I just want to help them build the wall and, and help govern them for a while. Please, king, let me do this. And Artaxerxes gave him permission. Now, if this word gets out, Artaxerxes might see Nehemiah, if he believes these rumors, as setting himself up not as governor of Judah under King Artaxerxes, but as another king who is now planning to rebel. And this is so dangerous if Artaxerxes gets word of this because, remember, it was that rumor that caused Artaxerxes to stop the work in the first place. If you go back to Ezra chapter 4, it was a letter that was sent to Artaxerxes telling Artaxerxes and warning him that the city of Jerusalem had a bad history of being rebellious, that kings of Jerusalem had a bad history of being rebellious. And when Artaxerxes looked back at the archives and saw that that was true, he sent people down there with a message to stop by force the building of that wall. And that's when the walls were broken down and the gates were burned. That's, remember, the message that brought Nehemiah down there in the first place. And so Artaxerxes has already been told this and has already seen this in the archives and already has it in the back of his mind. So all it would take would be him to have less trust in his cupbearer and actually believe that these rumors are true than to dismiss the rumors because he trusts Nehemiah. And there's nothing that Nehemiah can do about it. How can he stop it once the rumor mill has begun? <coughs> they say to Nehemiah in this open letter, after they explain everything that this threatened rumor will say to King Artaxerxes, they say, so now, come, let us reason together. Essentially, Sanballat here has kind of like become the uh, 4th century B.C. Uh, version of Don Corleone. He's giving Nehemiah an offer he can't refuse. Because if Nehemiah felt pressured before, what do you think this will do? You see, this is a scary situation for Nehemiah. Sanballat could be bluffing, but Nehemiah wouldn't know it. And if word of this gets to Artaxerxes and he believes it, then Nehemiah would be accused of high treason and executed, and surely Jerusalem would be destroyed. So all of this now is hanging on Nehemiah. Now those of you who are leaders of some sort, 
Those of you who are managers or CEOs of a company or I as a pastor, if you have any kind of leadership position, uh, you know what it's like to face a difficult situation, a situation where one false mistake and, and lots of things could be ruined. Look at what's hanging on the back of Nehemiah. If, if he judges wrongly here, he could get killed and all the people that he loves and the city that he loves destroyed. How does he respond? Well, it's not as diplomatic this time. Verse 8, he says, look, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For he knew, verse 9, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. He knew that's what they wanted, ultimately. What else could he say? He couldn't stop it. All he could say is, look, you're making this up. That's not what we intend to do. I can't imagine the kind of pressure that Nehemiah feels, the anxiety, the fear, knowing what this open letter might lead to, which is why I think it's even more amazing that he doesn't stop. You would think that he would stop what they're doing and do whatever he could to stop this letter from getting to Artaxerxes, but he doesn't. Instead, he, he presses on to finish his work. But notice in verse 9, he doesn't press on without once again asking God for strength. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And time and again, we see that it is trials. It is the fire of circumstances beyond his control. It is the trial that gives him the heartache and the sadness, and the worry, and the anxiety that sends him to his knees to ask God for strength and to seek God's help. You know, this is one of those moments where if I'm Nehemiah, I think I'm asking God, Lord God, why is this happening? I don't understand. You called me to do this work. You provided for me to come down here. You have given me the means to come down here. You laid it on my heart to come down here. You gave me protection to come down here. I am trying to accomplish your work. Why, Lord, will you not stop these attacks? That's probably what I would be asking God. Are there times in your life, Christian, maybe you're in one now, when you can't possibly understand why God would plan for the thing that you're going through. You have gone through all the mental gyrations to think through all the possible reasons for this thing, whatever it is, to be happening, and you see no reason at all, no good reason for this thing to be happening in your life right now. You see, Scripture tells us, we sometimes find this, I can... Myself, I read this and I find this hard to believe. But Scripture promises us that we ought to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds because we can know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Thomas Watson, Puritan, in his book, All Things for Good, he says this, Job, who we 
read there uh, that passage from Job. Job eyed God in his affliction. In his affliction, Job saw God's hand right from the beginning as being involved in it. As Augustine observes, Job does not say, the Lord gave and the devil took away. But Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whoever then, Thomas Watson, this is still him, whoever then brings an affliction to us, it is God ultimately that sends it. No vessel can be made of gold without fire. So it is impossible that we should be made vessels of honor unless we are melted and refined in the furnace of affliction. As the painter intermixes bright colors with dark shadows, so the wise God mixes mercy with judgment. But just when we thought the worst attack had come to Nehemiah, perhaps he faces the most difficult attack of all in verses 10 through 13. Because what we see there is that he is attacked by someone who should have been his friend. See, it's one thing to be betrayed and attacked by your enemies. It's quite another to be betrayed by a friend. And this man, Shemaiah, that we see here in verse 10, he was a prophet. He should have been sharing with Nehemiah words from God. Notice here that he's confined to his house. That's probably something he's pretending to be in order to be in league with Nehemiah. He knows that Nehemiah is trying to lay low and, and protect himself and, and cover from the enemies, and he's saying, look, Nehemiah, you have to come to me in my house because I'm laying low as well. I don't want to be found out. I'm trying to give you news from God. Please come to my house. Notice he's pretending to be Nehemiah's friend. But notice what Shemaiah suggests. He suggests that they gather together, just the two of them, notice, in the house of God, into the inner confines of the temple itself. Not only go there, but close the doors of the temple. Why? Because he says, look, they're coming to kill you by night. You need to be protected. Now, Nehemiah has just prayed to God, Lord God, strengthen my hands. Perhaps this is an answer to prayer. Perhaps God sends Shemaiah right in the nick of time and and God is saying, look, Nehemiah, I'm answering your prayer. Go see my prophet, and he will hide you away. But you see, Nehemiah understands in a moment that this man is not sent by God, but by his enemies, Sanbiah and Tobalat, who have paid him to betray Nehemiah. Notice his answer to Shemaiah. Verse 11, should such a man as I run away... And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah first appeals to his own stature and character. He says, look, God didn't send me down here to run and hide. He sent me down here to lead. That's not what I ought to be doing. And second of all, even if it is something that would be wise to do, I know this isn't coming from God because you have told me to enter the inner confines of the temple and I am not a priest. You see, how did Nehemiah know 
beyond a shadow of doubt that this man was not a prophet sent by God, but was in fact a false prophet. It's because he knew God's word. He knew that he was not allowed to enter the temple, not being a priest. Shemaiah is proposing something that goes directly against God's word. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3. Listen to what it says. God says to, to the nation of Israel, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Okay, now what we have to understand is God had already said, if a prophet comes to you and prophesies something and it doesn't come to pass, if he prophesies in my name and it doesn't come to pass, he's a false prophet. So he's to be stoned. Okay? Now God is saying, if even if a prophet prophesies something to you and it comes to pass, you still might not know that he is a true prophet. Why? God says, if he says, quote, let us go after God, other, other gods. In other words, if that prophet tries to encourage you to do something that my word has clearly said not to do, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Nehemiah says, for this purpose, I know he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they can give me a bad name in order to taunt me. See, if Nehemiah sins, if he enters the temple without being a priest, then it's no longer just that he's being a weak leader, it's no longer just that he's making a bad decision, it is that he is going directly against God's law. While these other temptations might have tempted Nehemiah to lead himself into danger and be labeled a bad leader, this one is going to lead him to be called a sinner. As one scholar writes, when they could not accuse him of being a political rebel, they tried to make him a religious transgressor. You know, the worst attacks, I believe, the worst attacks that come at the church come not from the outside, but from the inside. They don't come from the world. The world attacks the church, but oftentimes we can see clearly that the world's attack is against the word of God. But when the attack comes from the inside, from someone who is supposed to be a pastor or a teacher or back then a prophet, and it goes against the word of God, it can be so subtle that it can pull the church away from the truth of God. And that is why the church has to constantly be in the word of God and know what God's word says so that when a false prophet, which the Bible talks about false prophets and false teachers all over the place, so that when they arise, we know that what they are saying is wrong. Verse 14, Nehemiah, interestingly, he goes and prays again. Again, this, this inside attack, it sends Nehemiah to his knees, and he says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. What we see here is that it's not just this guy, Shemaiah that a number of people have turned against Nehemiah. It should have been helping him out. And we see in verses 17 to 19 at the very end that these trials for Nehemiah didn't really ever come to an end. 
that really his entire time down there as leader, he had people going against him. But we see here in verses 15 to 16 the joyous conclusion to this chapter. We see here that though they had so much going against them, constant attacks, an unprofessional crew having to work with one hand while the other hand held a weapon, disheartened workers, threats to Nehemiah himself from the outside, betrayal from the inside. Despite all of those hardships, Nehemiah says the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Brothers and sisters, that wall, scholars believe, was anywhere from a mile and a half to four miles long. And it was constructed in 52 days. And in addition, Nehemiah says it was finished in what we would consider the month of October in 454 BC. So if you think about it, they built in the worst weather conditions. They built this wall in the stifling heat of late July to early September, late September. Now this feat, building this wall in 52 days, is so incredible. Sounds so improbable that modern scholars today dismiss it as improbable. There's no way that it could have happened. The reason they do is because they don't factor God into the equation. Notice what Nehemiah says. When our enemies heard of it, he doesn't deny that it's incredible. He, he states flatly, it's an unbelievable thing that happened, that we built this wall in 52 days, and that's why when our enemies heard of it and all the nations around, they were afraid. They fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. There's no way it could have happened otherwise. Hundreds of years earlier, Jeremiah prophesied that this would be the case. Jeremiah 33, 9, this city, Jerusalem, shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and the prosperity that I provide of it. Notice here that it isn't the people of Israel, although I'm sure they did too, it isn't the people of Israel that Nehemiah points to and say, they were the people that noticed that it was done by the help of, God, of our God. He says it's the nations around them. That this work was so improbable that the fact that it happened, it was the surrounding pagan nations that gave God the glory. Six months after Nehemiah had been told of the plight of Jerusalem, the wall had been completed. Unbelievable. Except that it was really God who built the wall. And it was God who gets all the glory. From first to last, just go back through Ezra and Nehemiah. From first to last, you see that this work has been God's. Over and over again, it is written that it is God's hand that has guided, that has protected, that has sustained, and that has now completed this effort. And he did it against all odds. And brothers and sisters, that is what we are. That is what the church is. Scripture says that we who are sitting in this room right now, if you are Christ, you were once just like anybody else a child of wrath, dead in your sins, and unable to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. And that against all odds, 
we are a walking, talking miracle because there is no way that we would be sitting here worshiping God unless it was God who did the saving. We are a testament to the sovereign power of God. Friend, Jesus stayed true to his mission even when it took him to the cross. You see, thousands of years earlier, just as Jeremiah had prophesied that this great work would be done in Jerusalem, thousands of years before Jeremiah, God prophesied that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. That promise had been made right after the fall. And Satan tried everything he could to stop it from happening. From outside attacks to inside attacks, he tried everything he could to stop the seed from destroying him. And right at the end, when Christ was here, when the, when the seed of the woman had been born, Satan knew that his time was short. Satan knew that the walls had basically been built, that they were going to be unbreachable, that, that as of yet, just the doors had not been hung, but that everything else had been done. And Satan knew that if Jesus completed his mission, he was finished. He would have no other option. And so he tried pressuring him in every way imaginable. Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in all ways. See, one sin, one trip up, one step off the path, and Jesus was finished as the Messiah. He could not be the seed. And Satan tried every way he could, mainly through outside enemies, but in the end, he even tried through the betrayal of a friend, an inside job. And I can't imagine the kind of pressure, the kind of fear, the kind of anxiety that Jesus felt on the night he was betrayed. Which is why I'm so amazed that he didn't stop. That he didn't walk away. That he didn't call down legions of angels to rescue him. He continued to press forward until he reached the cross. But he didn't do so without once again asking God for strength. Three times he pleaded with his father. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Against all odds, our Savior persevered, and it is he who gets all the glory. From first to last, brothers and sisters, this great work of salvation is his. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this time. So thankful, Lord, for a reminder that you are the one who is building your church. Father, thank you that our Lord did not stop his work, but that he was faithful to the end and that he crushed the head of the serpent. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we depart by reminding us of this great work and reminding us of our home with you forever because of him. In Jesus' name, amen.